0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. We are going to finish this chapter. I want you to be impressed. That's two weeks, one chapter. (laughs) Pretty good, right? Uh, Which means there's a lot to do today, and hopefully we do this uh, well enough that it doesn't get lost. So we're getting in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. I've told you this before, but we have a thing called the Preaching Collective at Redemption Church. Every Wednesday, uh, all of the lead pastors, uh, teaching pastors of the of the congregations gather together here in the conference room at Gilbert, and we open up the text for passages passage we're going to teach in 10 days. So this last Wednesday, we talked about next week's passage, not this week's passage, and that's how our, our routine goes. And, and it's, uh, it's a process that most of you would understand. Uh, we talk about what it says and what does it mean and what, are we sh- what we should do with it, sort of like how you would study the scriptures. One of the things that we do, and, and the thing that I enjoy the most about it is when we stop and actually wrestle with the gospel line in it. Like, what's the gospel point of this passage? Because if we're not careful when it comes to, like, really specific passages like what we're going through, it ends up being a list of things that the church is supposed to do without seeing it through the lens of salvation and the gospel, and so we can mess it up. It, it can become a legalism. It can become uh, duty and not love. And so we, we, we manage that very carefully that we want to see everything the scriptures say to believers through the lens of God's wonderful gospel. And not make the mistake of thinking that things now we do are pleasing God. Because they're not. God, through Christ, by a work of the Holy Spirit in sinners, changes us and, gr- and creates righteousness in us. That God himself pleases himself over our sin. Amen? And so that's, that's what we want to hold on to and remember and that the gospel is given to us freely, but it makes a free people. So any other instruction we bring into this can't just labor us down with duty and so confuses us between are, are, we, are we really free or are we working for it now? Do you understand the tension when you're dealing with commands and specific things like that? So it's really important to understand what Paul is telling us here. Um, the gospel is something that we live out of and not something we strive to earn. And so in Paul's mind, in these last chapter and a half that we've been studying, these particulars of of love, he's not given us a list of laws. He's actually given us a list of loves. That's how love looks. That's what love does. And so it's not just duty, it's love. I was listening to Piper this week kind of give a tutorial of Romans, and I thought it was helpful, so we've said it in different ways. Maybe another way would also be helpful to you. Romans is a book about what God does, Period. From chapter 1 to chapter 16, it's all a work of God. No one's confused on who gets the glory from this particular story. And uh, it splits very nicely at chapter 11. So we go 1 through 11 and then 12 through, through 16. The first uh, part of Romans is the truth of God's work for us. That in our sin and, and brokenness, in our blindness and deadness, God had to do a work for us in Jesus that he grants by faith that we're saved. Right? It's all a work of God. We've said this over and over again. But it never changes, really, because just because that first 11 chapters is a work um, of God for us doesn't mean that at chapter 11, okay, God, we got it from here. You can sit this one out. Everything else is a work of God in us. But no one's confused that it's all not a work of God. Amen? Every bit of it is, is his um, power through the Spirit to save and transform a people. And so these last 10 weeks, we've been unpacking... Um, Chapters 12 and and now 13, this idea that we love because he loved us, right? This reflection kind of love. And uh, so we were in last week talking about a very pragmatic one about, and this is the way Paul finished in in verse 7, pay what you owe. Those you, that owe you respect to, respect them, and those that you honor, honor them, and those you owe taxes and revenues. So he's talking about love as a reflection, and, and it looks like this, pay what you owe. And so with that in mind, as, as a continuation of thought, Paul now picks up this idea of owing and the, and the subject of love, and he carries it through the end of chapter 13, understood? So we understand the context of this. Let's read these uh, few verses, and uh, we'll pray together, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you should not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. God, I thank you for the gospel. It never quits. Even in this very, very specific section of what love looks like, we understand that it's a love that's reflected um, by your love for us. The gospel drives us. So, God, I pray right now that you would uh, make it clear to us. I pray that you'd prevent me from saying something you didn't say. I pray, God, that you make your point. I pray that your people are encouraged and motivated because of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, I've broke this section down um, to six points that Paul makes. Here's the, f- here's the very first one. Love is about debt. If you like taking notes, this is pretty easy. Love is about debt. Verse 8, owe no one anything except love each other. Th- these first four words in verse 8 seem maybe at first blush a little out of place um, possibly a little difficult to hear. Um, some have taken interpreted these four words to mean that, that God says for his people that we should not ever borrow. And uh, so, with it, Paul in mind of, of what we owe, he brings this up. And he says, um, specifically, owe no one anything. The phrase particularly means this. It means to be bound or obligated to perform a duty. Now, the scriptures all over, uh, Leviticus, Exodus, Matthew, even Jesus talked about the rules of the road when it comes to, and the regulations of borrowing and lending, so the scriptures have more to say than just this passage, so those who suggest that somehow Christians aren't supposed to ever borrow, this is not what this is saying. Let me make it clear, the the NIV, if you got one of those uh, versions, it, it probably does the best job with this phrase, it says, let no debt remain outstanding, here's Paul's point, Christian... Pay your debts. It's all he's saying. Pay what you owe. Very, very simple. Which, by the way, and, and, and by, all these particular things in here get a little bit tight for us because this is one of those that's totally countercultural to the American way of life. We live in a world of default. Um, now, I understand that some people, by the sovereign hand of God, are buried under debt they didn't plan and didn't, didn't make the decision for. But that's the exception. A lot of people carry around dumb decisions. And because our culture says it's okay to walk away from your dumb decisions, that's where this passage comes in, because love doesn't do that. That's Paul's point. Um, we are... Uh, Probably more concerned with adding more to our pleasure category versus paying off debt, as Paul says, a suggestion that it's, a, it's an act of love, an obligation to love. And I understand how this culture has happened because we live in a nation of debtors. I went online this week and looked up our national debt, not to scare you, but 19, or $17.9 trillion dollars. I also got a calculator out and figured that if every man, woman, and child breathing in our country were to try to pay off that debt, we would all owe $57,000 apiece. It ain't never going to happen. Not in our day. People, uh, people who study these things, say that every household in America has some $15,000, $16,000 worth of credit card debt, not including student loans, and loans, and loans, and loans, and, and loans, and loans. And the reason why I bring that up is because what's a viable option in our culture today is to walk away from it. If it's too much, just leave it, because that's the way it works. And I'm not saying, please don't hear me say that there isn't some point in time that the unusual circumstances where the stars have aligned, sicknesses happen, inability happens under God's sovereign hand, and and that there is maybe a a necessity for that. What I'm talking about is the culture of not obeying this text. Christians pay your debts. That's the act of love. Pay what you owe. Um, it's loving to the lender. It frees us up financially to meet the needs of other people. It's an act of love to be uh, paying our debts. And so th- this passage predominantly isn't just about finances, so don't, don't worry. But I do feel like we have to say some things about this this particular issue. And I thought of three words that would help us understand maybe how to quickly navigate this discussion. And the words are this, contentment, wisdom, and love. If you want to think about your finances, think about contentment as, as God defines it. Paul talked about it to, to a young pastor named Timothy. He said, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. See, we think gain is buying things and having things that make us happy, but the Christian's perspective is godliness, with contentment I have enough means that I'm gaining. It's totally countercultural, spiritually speaking, for a Christian. It's in contentment. And by the way, you've, if you've lived long enough, you know that having what you want doesn't make you happy. It's a, it's a total rat race, right? The other one is wisdom. The other word is wisdom. How about try this one on for size? And I, I think it's totally a, a, a perfect other way to say what Paul has just said here in these four words. Um, don't borrow more than you can pay back ever, and, and, and I, I thought of this too, um, a lot of us stretch ourselves to borrow, which puts us in a position where we may or may not be able to pay this back, I'm suggesting to you the gospel has always said, you stretch yourself to give, not to borrow, the reason why you don't fulfill every want and desire is so that you have a hand to meet other people's needs, you stretch, but not for you, understood, so wisdom, don't, don't borrow what you can't pay, and then ultimately it's what Paul's saying here, this third word, love, love, don't ever, ever, God willing, walk away from your obligations. Meet, meet the obligation because we have the opportunity to love others that way. Okay, so that's, that's those four words. But there is a debt that Paul suggests here that we never walk away from. I mean, that we never, ever pay back. And that is the debt of love. Do you see the second phrase here? Accept to love one another. Now, Paul doesn't have in mind here um, the debt of love to believers. He's already talked about our our love for the body in in verse 10. What Paul is thinking about here is the difficult person to love. He's talking about the uh, stranger and the enemy. He's talking about the odd. He's talking about the uh, culturally um, difficult, religiously different person. He's saying, don't ever, don't ever settle up on that one. You have a debt to those people that you're never gonna pay back. This, this isn't an easy love. It's not a convenient love. It's not a safe love. It's not an inexpensive love. It's just the opposite. It's awkward and it's hard and it's expensive and it makes me uncomfortable. That's the kind of love that Paul has said, we never pay that debt off. We just keep paying that kind of a debt. It's a reflective love. In other words, it looks like the love of which God loved us. So so let me put it another way. Um, If you're in a difficult situation with someone, what Paul is saying here in, in this short little phrase, you can never say that you loved enough. So, when your husband is an absolute loser, he's been a jerk and he hurts you, when she doesn't listen to you, doesn't respect you, when she throws you under the bus at every shot she's got, when you've got a kid who won't respect you and does everything to harm himself and ruin his own reputation, when a boss just uses you and doesn't appreciate you and doesn't pay you what you're worth, that's when we can say, I've, you can never say, I've, I've loved enough, I've done enough, but I've, I've given it my all and it's, it's done. Paul says this is a debt of love we never, ever are finished with. We're always paying this back. People can irritate us and use us and frustrate us and be unreasonable, hard to deal with, but we can never say, I'm done. And the reason why is this reflective love like we talked about. What does the scripture say about where God found us? When we were at what? War with him. What does the scripture say about this ongoing relationship with God? Just the wayward nature of of mankind. Like, have you decided this week to count the ways in which you've sinned against God? I don't know anybody who does that. Talk about debt. And here's how God treats us. In spite of what we know, and in spite of the war, in spite of wandering away, we are never rejected, we are never judged, we are never punished. We're never excluded because of the love of Christ. Anybody want to say amen to that? We are infinitely loved by an infinite God, and we are called and, by the way, transformed to reflect that love to people that are really, really hard to love. If you're doing the math right now, you've probably got a person or persons already in your mind, and you're asking yourself the question, I don't know, I don't know, God never met my friend. Well, here's what the scriptures say. Paul goes on to add this point. Love fulfills God's law. In to verse 8. For the one who loves another, like he's just suggested, has fulfilled the law. I, I believe there's a big disconnect for most people when it comes to understanding grace and law. Like if you've been around for the last year and a half, you've heard us talk about grace in such a degree that it should bother you. You're totally free apart from work completely. And so some of us would see grace and go, love it, love grace. And then there are other people who look at God's law and say, no, that's the latter. That's how I get out of my problems. I work myself to pleasing God. And they don't see how law and God's love work together. But they do go together in, in Paul's mind. You can't jettison either one. And the reality is that we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone and nothing more, but we are also being transformed after conversion into the image of Jesus, aren't we? which is the description of a loving life, of which the law tells us what that loving life looks like. The law isn't meant to get you out of your problems. It's to describing how God is transforming your problems into the image of Jesus. Do you understand? They go hand in hand. You can't walk away from God's law and say, well, I can just live any way I want. I can hurt other people. I don't have to repay my debts. I can just be a jerk. And that's not how this goes. We see the law as, as, as the way in which to love other people as we're being transformed in the image of Christ. The Ten Commandments um, alone make a really good picture of the aspects of love, a vertical and a horizontal thing, right? The first four commandments have to do with how we love God. The rest of them have to do with how we love other people. When the Pharisee asked Jesus the, the simple question, what's the greatest commandment, what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. That right there is the sentence that encapsulates everything that God says of us, what he's doing in us and will do through us uh, to to other people. But everyone's looking for the loophole. Everybody looks for the loophole. Because we have that one scenario, that one person, that one situation where that is just impossible. You don't know him. You don't know him like I know him. In fact... um, we're looking for ways to avoid how absolute this is because we don't like to feel convicted and we certainly um, want at least a shot of, of trying to get better at this. So if I can just exclude the difficult, maybe, maybe I can do fairly decent at loving people. Now, there is a story um, in Luke chapter 10 that defines what I'm talking about clearly. You know it as the story of the Good Samaritan, but let me give you the background a little bit. A lawyer came up to Jesus and asked him the question, What's the, what's the command? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus says to him, Well, look at the law. How do you read it? Now, I find it very interesting that Jesus didn't say um, something nebulous. He brings in the law to define love. And he says to him, What do you read in the law? How do you define it? Look at it. And he came back with the conclusion, Well, I guess it's just to love God, everything you got, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, You're right. Absolutely. That's it. That's the essence of what it is to follow. And then the, the lawyer said this, looking for the loophole. Uh, who's my neighbor? Because th- this is where it gets uncomfortable. If you tell me to love my neighbor, whom I like, whom's li- who is like me, maybe. But who's my neighbor? And then Jesus brings up this scandalous story of the Samaritan. This story is, is this... this um, This Jewish man, leaving Jericho, gets waylaid, and he gets beaten and robbed, and he's in the ditch, half dead, the text says. And a priest and a Levite, two religious men, who have position in the community and in the synagogue, walk right past him and ignore him completely, but a Samaritan stopped. And the Samaritan took care of him, bound his wounds, paid for his care, put him on his donkey, got him to town, and and. That particular story has very little relevance to us, it, but to this culture, it was absolutely absurd. Samaritans were hated, hated half-breeds. They, they were um, enemies. In fact, they couldn't even say the word Samaritan. In fact, if you look at even that story, when Jesus says, who do you suggest, who do you think was most merciful in this story? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He, he had to say the guy who was merciful. It was too difficult to even utter the words Samaritan. These people were hated. And Jesus used that story to talk about the difficult way in which we love all people, even the the ones that are hard to love. And Paul tells us here that kind of love fulfills the law of God. Not to the easy, but to the difficult. To those who make life hard on us, we love like that. Let me give you a third thing that Paul talks about in this text. Love doesn't hurt others. Love is about debt. Love fulfills the law, and love doesn't hurt others. 9 and 10. For the the commandments you shall not... Commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. John Stott said this about the contrast of love and law and why they need each other. He says, law and love need to go together. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. So, Here's why the law has been given to us so we know precisely what it is that is hurtful to others, things that we aren't to do. And if you're going to love, as the scriptures and the gospel tell the church to love, then we need to know exactly what it does that brings pain and harm to others. And he brings a couple of scenarios together for us that seem to be obvious. Don't commit adultery. Why don't commit adultery? Not only does it hurt you and the other person, it hurts the other spouses, it hurts the kids, the ripple effect is huge. Huge. If you care about other people, the ripple effect is just absolutely enormous. It ruins reputations. It ruins families. He talks about murder. We probably don't have to talk about that. But again, it is, its ripple effect is ongoing. Stealing hurts your neighbor. It leaves them with little, and we're supposed to leave them with graciousness. Coveting hurts your neighbor because it's driven by our desire for what we don't have, and so we're looking for other things as opposed to uh, meeting their needs. And just to cover his bases, Paul adds this in in verse 9. And, by the way, any other commandment. So I've given you a, a short list of some of these things that hurt other people. And any other commandment God gives is an example of what I'm talking about. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. So this kind of love is practical. So specific and practical how we treat one another. Any kind of regard for a person whatsoever, any kind of respect, any kind of concern, any, any real kind of love is more than just how we feel. We can't just feel our way to this kind of love. We have to do certain things. And Paul suggests do the law. Not do the law to be saved, not to do the law to be right with God, not to do the law to feel good about yourself. Do the law, and if you do the law, others will be loved. Do you understand? That's his point. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's how we do it. So, so far he's talked about love being a debt. He's talked about um, how love fulfills a law and it doesn't hurt other people. Here's the fourth thing that Paul brings up in this discussion of love. He says that the time to love is urgent. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I went online this week, and I went to deathclock.com. Anybody been to Death Clock? It's kind of morbid, but it was fun. Um, it officially says I have 619,259,636 seconds left to live. I'm supposed to die May nineteenth, two 2034. So, um... Feel free to celebrate that. <laughs> and I do not suggest you going back and typing in your friends and family and neighbors and see when they're <laughs> going to die. Um, I thought it was hysterical. Um, the point is, I don't trust that. I don't know if it's tomorrow or if it's 20, you know, 34 or if it's much older. It, the point is, we, nobody knows. We don't know. Um, but we do know this, right? According to Paul... We're closer to the end than we were yesterday. This is not deep. (laughs) It's math. There was a a story I I read this week of a little boy living in a farmhouse in the Midwest, and they had a grandfather clock in in the living room. And it malfunctioned one day. Instead of hitting 12 chimes at noon, it went 15, and he came tearing down the stairs screaming at his mother in the kitchen, it's later than it's ever been. <laughs> that's what Paul's saying. It's later than it's ever been, church, and you know that. That's, that's what he has in mind. We do not have forever to love like Paul's calling us to love. We don't have forever to care for our neighbor. We, do, we don't have forever to make things right. Right? You ever ever seen the movie Bucket List? Some of you have. I love that movie, Um, but it does it does teach a a pretty regular response to the topic of I'm dying. Everyone sorts things out, at least at some level, when they think it's almost over. And here's what I want you to get. I think this is Paul's point. You're the church. You live with the expectation and hope that Jesus is coming back for you. He could come back tomorrow. He can come back right now before I finish this sentence. You know that. And even if he doesn't come back in your lifetime, you're going to die. So you know there's an urgency to our life and living, right? That's what Paul's saying here. No more excuses. No more putting it off. No more reasons why it, doesn't, it isn't working for you or it's inconvenient for you or this person's too difficult for you. Paul is saying it's, you're running out of time to love like this. So love like this get busy loving. Here's the fifth thing he says. Verses 12 and 13, love means taking something off. The night is far gone and the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The picture that Paul is painting here is the picture of dressing for the day. Like when you wake up, you don't just go into work with your pajamas on. Hopefully, you put on work clothes and you go out there to work for the day. And you get to work. Paul said in verse 11, it's time to wake up from our sleep. And I thought if there was a a phrase... That it would never want to be said about the church, is that phrase. They're sleeping. And yet some are. Paul suggests to get up, get up, get to work, take off the filthy things, put on the righteous things and, and get to work. And yet here's what someone could say about the church. It's really, really happy with its own salvation. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. But could care less about holiness. I'm so glad I get to go to heaven, I get to escape hell, I got fire insurance, it's awesome. But we don't live righteous lives, and that's what he's saying. Take off the dirty things, put on the holy things, um, take off the works of darkness. He mentions six specific things here um, it's almost as if Paul had a time machine and landed in Arizona in 2014, to be honest with you. He says, um, he talks about orgies, which is self-explanatory, but the word is really used of public parties of bad things talks about drunkenness, which is a classic Christian thing to do. It's uh, drinking and losing control. It's getting your buzz on. It's using alcohol to loosen up and to cope with stress and problems. That's the acceptable way in which Christians drink. I'm telling you, Paul says, don't go there. Should be convicting because he calls it a a work of darkness. So you need to figure out what parts you're going to set aside to walk in holiness. So if you're a coper, if you like to loosen up and get your buzz on and party with your friends, I'm just suggesting to you, it is not the way of love that Paul's talking about here. He talks about sexual immorality, sleeping around, pornography. You, you put it in there. That's a classic place to go underground with sin. Nobody knows. Sensuality is a word used of people who parade their immorality in public. In fact, our world has conveniently created tools to help us do this, called Facebook, Instagram, and so forth. and so on. So present yourself in some kind of way that, it's just jacked up. Quarreling, fighting to win at all costs, jealousy, anger over the success of other people, and, and I suppose this isn't an exhaustive list from Paul either. It's just an example of deeds of darkness we're supposed to put off so we can walk in light. Make sense? You've got to put them off, which means there needs to be effort towards those things. If you're just sitting here going, okay, God, if you want me to be different, I'm going to wait. Close the windows. Get rid of the internet if you need to. In relationships. Do whatever you have to do to walk in holiness, right? I love you. Okay. So there is no way at all, impossible, can happen to love other people the way Paul is saying to love if we continue to walk in those dark things, right? We're supposed to put something on. Last last thing and we're done. Verse 14, we are um, to put something on. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is not two commandments, by the way. Some people would split that and say to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, one commandment. Two is to make no provisions for the flesh. I'm suggesting to you that if you obey that first one to put on Jesus, the next thing is the outcome. You will not make provisions for the flesh if you put on Jesus. Jesus your Lord and Savior. You will not follow the ways of darkness if you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fact that Paul didn't say, put on Jesus, or put on Christ, or put on Lord. He didn't separate it that way. He said everything. And the reason why I think the total title of Christ was used is because of what it says and the power in what it says. Lord means master. It means the uh, owner, sovereign of the universe. In other words, he's in charge. Our God is in charge, and we're under his authority And so we are to take his command to love other people seriously. This is not a suggestion. He says, not only put on the Lord, put on Jesus, our Savior. I love this. I'm so glad this is here. But Savior just means the one who covers. He's our righteousness. Here's what I know about love for me. I might have a good day. I'm probably going to have a bad day. And I'm never going to be judged for it. Whenever I fail in trying to follow and put off the deeds of darkness and love Christ, I am covered by the righteous robes of Jesus. I am never defeated. It's never over because of my Savior, amen? Put on Christ. The word means anointed. In other words, he's the power. He's the mighty power of God to enable us to go and love the way he loves. So now just look at this whole picture, okay? Look at the picture of what he says to put on. He says, the master of our lives... Who is God, calls us to love with the power that he faithfully provides and all the while covering over our deficiencies and failures by his grace and mercy. Who isn't drawn to that? I can love knowing that he's never going to go, I'm disappointed in you, man. You knew better than that. I can love because he provides the power to love, to do the impossible in me because he is, he is Christ. So I love, I just want to leave you with one question. When Jesus is talking to the lawyer about who your neighbor is, we made the point that our neighbor is the difficult, not just the easy. I just want to leave you with this question so you can go home and wrestle with it. What kind of neighbor are you? Are you, the, are you this kind of neighbor, this loving kind of neighbor, The sacrificial kind of neighbor, the never quit neighbor? Are you the the neighbor who confesses sins and puts off deeds of darkness and pursues the holiness of Christ? Are you the one that just gives, like gives like crazy? Are you paying off your debt of love? Are you that kind of neighbor? I'm going to just suggest to you that's exactly what Paul says here. The church, the church, through the power of the risen Lord living inside of it, this is where he's going in our life. Reflection of love we received. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Christ, our Savior, who um, loved us with a sacrificial, giving love. It's hard for us. Um, We see our enemies, and we see the people who hurt us, and the people that we just don't enjoy, and so we we don't naturally lean lean into those things. So God, we just pray for your power. We uh, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace to us as we struggle with this. We thank you for being the uh, God of of all um, the universe to call us to this task of which you have demonstrated to us through Christ. God, I pray that your bride would put on the deeds of righteousness and put off the deeds of darkness, and I pray that you would get the glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.